So I'd like to start here by uh, reading one of my <clears throat> introductions. Fujisan, waiting in the town of Fuji no Miaya, six days waiting for a break in the weather. Little window last day before turn, returning to Turtle Island. The morning, glimmer of hope, no rain. Then, the arduous pilgrimage to scale the volcano. How is it that we lock our minds into journeys that mimic our desire for freedom? How is it that we lock our minds into journeys that mimic our desire for freedom? Could it be some old story of struggle, archetypally needed to let go of the seeker? Letting go of one more piece of that rigid framework of who we think we are. Not halfway up, the thunder gods brought the winds, the rain, the sleet. Suddenly, looking everything, looking down on everything, remembering the multiple journeys of one breath, one step, of one breath of one step, of one breath, one step, over and over. I know somewhere deep down that I'm taking all my Dharma friends to the last Tory gate, being just a fragment of all these relationships, giving me strength to take one more step. Of course, at the top, there was no horns, choirs, angels, just nature saying, I'm much stronger than you. Nature's breath forcing you to struggle to stay on your feet. You must bow deeply to this little life of yours, knowing you're utterly alone here. This one slip on this volcanic rock spells disaster. But today, soaked to the bone, the angels have blessed your way on your onward journey, maybe a little deeper understanding of the emptiness of it all, a little bit more grace, bringing the heart into a little better alignment, caring for this one precious life. So, story. So, you know, my life has been pretty much the quintessential seeker who gets in a lot of trouble for over it, but, uh, you know, from the 60s, kind of going, uh, you know, hitchhiking through Europe, going overland uh, to India, and uh, probably, uh, you know, spending the next, I've spent 12 years in, uh, in Asia. And a lot of it was really based on this uh, seeker. Uh, and the seeker uh, always needs something to, um, it's like uh, the retreats, uh, keep some peace in front of us 
that's really based on uh, some understanding that if we can, in a sense, um, break through our confusion, uh, break through our, uh, you know, our stubbornness sometimes. So, this last summer, I usually go up to Ladakh for the summer and sit there, but this year I decided Japan was my, uh, my muse. I was going to go and, and um, spend a month in Kyoto and, and kind of temple, temple viewing or whatever you want to call it, uh, sitting on the side of the road uh, watching uh, everything go by. And the one thing was, though, there was um, Mount Fuji, you know? And in traditions, I have spent uh, a lot of my life uh, looking for uh, pilgrimages, uh, places that, uh, in a sense, uh, have some transpersonal thing about it. And Mount Fuji is one of those. Uh, It is, uh, you know, for the Japanese, uh, to do it once in your life. Uh, and the Japanese do say, you know, uh, only a fool climbs it twice. <laughs> so um, I made my decision I would do that. Now, I did make my first mistake was that uh, I thought I could do it in June. And um, that kind of got misled to realize that, oh, it doesn't open actually the mountain till the 1st of July. So I kind of waited and I, I kind of, fl- I flew in for, this was for six days, uh, thinking, well, you know, six, that gives me a lot of time to climb Mount Fuji, you know. Uh, what I didn't really realize is that mountain doesn't actually open till mid-July and uh, till the mid-September. So I flew in and uh, I, I, one of the things was I was looking for the pilgrimage. And the pilgrimage happened to be the steepest route up Mount Fuji and has been uh, traditionally walked uh, in um, uh, rice uh, sandals. I mean, there's a whole kind of uh, ritual around uh, climbing Mount Fuji. So um, I went to the village, which is not so popular. Uh, and I, actually, the 60s, I never saw a foreigner. Uh, not that I saw many anyway. But um, one of the pieces there was that there was a temple at the bottom. And that temple at the bottom, uh, in all pilgrimages, there's always kind of a, a ritual process that you go through. And in this case, uh, you went to this, do you know what a Tori gate is? It's these big... Uh, big uh, Japanese gates. It's a huge one uh, in this uh, town. And uh, there is this uh, literally uh, a spring that flows uh, out of the rocks there that comes off of Mount Fuji. And you, you go to take your ritual bath there before you uh, do your ascent. So all this stuff totally enthralls me. You know, I mean, I've done... Uh, Borbador, uh, Sagang, I've done Kailash in Tibet. Uh, so this was one of those, ah, yes, here, I'm ready, you know. And so I, um, 
It took me five trains to get to this little town. And uh, then when I got there, it was just pouring rain. You know, and I was going, what is going on? So um, I actually make it to the, where the ritual bath is, and there is a, a temple there, and it's uh, kind of held by um, female priestesses because there is a, inside the main temple, uh, there is a goddess that has been captured. And she is there, and they kind of present things to and hold her. And they, they say that um, it hasn't erupted since uh, 1732 or something. So uh, their kind of ritual life is to keep her uh, happy and uh, tended so that uh, there won't be an eruption of Mount Fuji. So... Uh, so you go through this kind of uh, process there, and then um, and then I was going to wait for a good day. I gave myself six days, which was the, from the second of July to the I flew out the eighth of July, and I got there, and it rained, and it rained, and it rained, and it rained every day. Just incredible. Uh, poor. And what I didn't know was there was a typhoon just <laughs> south of Japan. And uh, it was actually wrecking havoc, right? But, you know, that's okay, you know. So um, finally, you know, I get to the, this is the 7th of July. I fly out the next day. So I, I and it, it's kind of clear in the morning. I can't even see the mountain, you know. And I go, John? This is your chance, you know, one chance. So, you know, I kind of get all my rain gear together and, you know, it's sort of REI special. And I've been carrying this for the last, I don't know, uh, six, seven weeks. All, all this, you know, boots and <laughs> amazing amount of ridiculous stuff. Anyway, I really needed it. <laughs> and um, so... I got to the foot of the mountain, and um, it was pouring rain, and I thought, oh, it was clear up. It'll be fine, right? You know, and, uh, and so I get to the first station, which is actually the fifth, station five, and there's a big sign across the road, you know, across the path, you know, and it says, um, closed due to snow, you know. <laughs> and so I'm there, and there Two, it was, I'm very grateful, you know, magic always happens. So there were two Japanese, also in REI gear, you know, and they went around it and started going up. And I went, yes, you know, that's what John does. So I go around and I start to climb, you know, and, and um, I got, I didn't get up halfway and the, suddenly, the, you know, lightning and thunder and suddenly it's, the downpour started. And one thing about um, volcanic um, rock like that, it's slippery, you know? And um, nobody on the mountain. And there are these stations where, you know, in the summertime, the actual summertime, uh, they ha you, know, you can get tea and uh, places to rest and all this, but they're all closed, of course. You know, I was just only, I was only, you know, maybe two weeks off, that's all, you know, but that was enough. And uh, so uh, with the grace of um, 
meditation willpower. Uh, I made it through the driving rain, and one of the things that the, the winds were uh, 35 kilometers an hour or so. So they weren't like 60 miles an hour or anything. They were, you know. But they were enough so, you know, and I had these titanium poles that I'd be going like, and the wind would hit me and it'd bounce off, and I would bounce off of these titanium poles and kept falling over. And, but I was determined. So I made it up. It's about 12,500 feet. And, um, you know, I had my picture taken. There was one, there was this Japanese woman at the top and, and nobody else up there. And, <laughs> I mean, they were all smart. And so, but the thing is that if you, uh, at, at the last Tory gate uh, of this process, and you get your picture taken, and the Japanese government uh, sends you a certificate for having climbed Mount Fuji. So I, I, I did get the, I haven't done it yet, but, you know, I, I, I got the picture taken. So to verify that uh, uh, this lost soul could make his way up uh, Mount Fuji. Oh, and I had a little, I had, I had two uh, oxygen bottles, you know, and on my way up, you know, when I got really, you know, I'm, I'm, I turned 70 pretty soon. You know, and and uh, so, you know, um, and I've done a lot of uh, high mountain uh, treks. But still, that oxygen was really cool. You know, it's like, wow, that refreshing. And so that, it, it helped me get up to the top. But, you know, one of the things about climbing, if you know anything about climbing, it's one thing going up, but it's another coming down. And so, you know, you think, oh, well, it's real easy now. It's it just, you know, it's almost straight down. You just kind of zigzag down and stuff. And um, so I start down, and, and uh, I do pretty good. And, um, and I start getting really tired, you know? And one of the things I, uh, one of the mistakes I made was uh, I had water, but it was raining so hard that um, I didn't really think I was dehydrated, you know? And so I, I made it down, I was probably halfway, and it was getting maybe 3.30, you know, it gets dark. And so it's starting 3.30, somewhere in there, and I'm like, I've got another halfway to go, and I fall, you know? And, um, and I fall, and I'm so tired, and I suddenly realize, and I don't get afraid, you know? I mean, I just, it's not my thing, you know? And so, but suddenly, out of nowhere, you know, I start realizing the predicament I'm in. It's going it's to be dark. You know, I have a wonderful headlamp that's waterproof and all that stuff, you know. But, but I am soaked. My boots have water in them, you know. I mean, I am just, and I am so tired. And so I sit there, and I realize how, also how slippery it is. And I, I'm, I'm really good. I was a ski racer, so I'm, you know, I'm pretty good even downhill. So, um, but I sit there, and I start, um, I, I, I'm probably there half an hour. And uh, there's a word that we have in, in Buddhist language called papancha. And it is mental proliferation. You ever heard of it? You know? I'm sure you don't do this. But, you know, it's just we, we get on to, um, you know, different things. And I don't usually, this is not my usual thing, but suddenly it was like, oh my God, I'm going to die up here, <laughs> you know? And you start, 
imagining. And that's really mental proliferation is all about imagining. Um, and so I started imagining, and I was going, oh my gosh, John, come on, you know better. And, uh, but yet, the compelling part, I was just so tired, you know? And so I didn't have the, the actually, the concentration or the wherewithal uh, uh, to fight the mental proliferation, the kind of the, because the fear kind of ignited it, and then I started making up the stories, you know? Oh my God, you know, this happened to me before in the Himalayas, by the way, many times. But I'm going, oh my God, you know, nobody knows I'm up here. Um, I, you know, I shouldn't have come today. You know, I should have been another day. Uh, you know, it's my last day. I, I, I just, you know, John, you're just so bonkers, you know? And so I start recognizing the, my, between the feeling and the thinking, you know, that uh, I was actually, uh, which happens, uh, out of balance, you know. And it took me, uh, I, mean, I, was, I had to sit down because I, so, I was so tired. And uh, for that probably half an hour, you know. And I remember when I finally said, John, you stop this, you know. You've got to get down. You've got you to keep going. So there's that part where you get to that point. But everything that happened before that was, man, we make up a lot of stories, you know. And uh, by the way, just to be sure about this, all your memories, all your stories, nah, you know, they're one perspective. They're probably a little bit true, but mostly not true, you know. It's, it's really like that thing of, you know, three people walk into a room and you ask them to describe the room. And you'll get three different answers. But this is going on all the time. It's part of the kind of the, the, the lila, the play that we're in, you know. And so I got up and, and one of the things I, I kept, I actually I kept falling, you know. And, um, and I was apprehensive at that point because the thing when, when, the, when the, the, the kind of this uh, lava rock, when it's wet, it's really slippery. You know, and so I suddenly mustered up all my concentration, and by dark I made it down. I'll have to finish the story, and then I'll get on to more to Papancha here. But I made it down, and uh, I made it down. There was one little like gift shop, you know, and I went in. And I noticed all the Japanese; they wouldn't even look at me, right? You know, and I was just like a wreck. But but what I didn't realize was, you know, I mean. Uh, I was. And so I sat over and he said, well, stay over there. So I, I went over and <laughs> stayed over there. And so I took my, my boots off. And the first boot I took off and I poured water out of the boot, you know. And then the sock, I kind of wringed it out and I realized, oh my gosh, this is the whole thing. And then I started going, <gasps> you know what? I got to get on the airplane tomorrow. <laughs> you know, my backpack is soaked. Everything was just totally soaked, you know. And, um, and it took about an hour to get a cab there to get me out. And I, I really had some time to, you know, kind of uh, ruminate on, whew, whew. That was, uh, don't do that again. <laughs> you know? And at that point then, I, um, I got the taxi back. And it was about 7 or 7.30. And then I had the great fortune 
uh, I was staying in this little teeny room, you know, Japan, the, you know, it was just a little hotel, a business hotel, and uh, it has a little bathroom about that size, you know, I mean, you barely get into it, you know, and, but they had a hairdryer, you know, so I spent most of the night with the hairdryer, <laughs> drying things out enough so I could pack my bag so I could get on a, a bus the next morning for a five-hour bus ride to the airport and then take my 11-hour flight from Nairita to San Francisco, you know. So that was story. It's just it's another story, you know. We all live with our stories, right? And we all tell them, who knows what's so or so or not, but that's pretty close, okay? <laughs> so... Papancha. So there really, uh, I want to just explore kind of four uh, aspects of the, you know, oh God, we are so good at, at this storytelling, you know? And um, there are forces uh, within the storytelling, you know? And so I'm going to kind of look at four of them. And uh, one of them uh, is just simple. It's called wanting. You heard of this one, you know? And uh, I'll clarify it so that one is wanting. The other one is aversion. Then there is uh, the truth about views and opinions about everything and everybody, you know. And, um, you know, uh, this truth around self, you know. What is it or isn't it? So I'd like to start with just wanting because, you know, first of all, to, to get it, it's really, in some ways, kind of simple, you know? Um, it's wonderful that we're, we have the karmic um, truth that we have, particularly in the West, in our, our kind of cultural situation, we get a lot of pleasant moments. Have you noticed that? You know, it's really cool. You know, have you tried the food down there? So that... that that one thing is there, but there's a distinction here that we have to learn. It's imperative. And the difference is, is between pleasantness and wanting, you know. And the Buddha didn't say anything about pleasantness. That's just, you know, that comes with our territory, right? Except uh, traditionally when I kind of think of it, it's like, okay, um, I, whatever karmically or whatever you want to call it, uh, I have ten moments of pleasantness. And so uh, I immediately, uh, you know, uh, I, I'm happy when I get pleasantness, you know? But there's one little trick there is uh, pleasantness fine. But maybe three moments into it, so you get your 10 moments, about three moments into it, you start leaning out of the present. And uh, our instinctual habit uh, is to kind of grab onto it, to imprison it, to hold it, to somehow, you know, um, you know, the belief that somehow we can imprison it or capture it or, or reproduce it or something. And uh, there is uh, actually a huge difference between the feeling, and this is what you have to teach yourself in this, the difference between pleasantness and wanting. And what's it like, you know? Mm. 
You know, I always, when I think about this, um, when my daughter was probably, she was probably about five. And, um, you know, she gave a list of all the things she wanted for Christmas, you know? And the thing was, you know, at five, uh, it's doable, you know? <laughs> when it gets crazier, it goes along, right? The Ferrari. And, and Anyway, you know, so the list was doable. So it was such an amazing thing to actually be able to kind of provide the things she wanted. And it was interesting, uh, you know, that process of opening the presents and the excitement and everything just bubble, 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 bubble. And then suddenly she opened the last one and there was a dead silence, you know. And she came over and she sat in my lap and I said, well, what's, what's going on, you know? And I could feel her sadness, you know? And it was like, she got everything she wanted, but it, that wasn't what it was about, you know, and it wasn't actually enough, you know. I think you know this. So this is one kind of piece around that. Again, the problem is not the object of desire, but the energy in the mind. The energy of desire keeps us moving, looking for that thing that is really going to do it for us. The wanting mind is in itself painful. It is a self-perpetuating habit that does not allow us to be where we are because we are grasping for something somewhere else. Even when we get what we want, we then want something more or different because the habit of wanting is so strong. It is a sense that being here and now, is a sense of being here and now is not enough. You know, so. I think you know this, you know. And yet, the habit, you know, believing somehow that the, uh, really, uh, what is the truth about the world? all of this, is anything stable? Or is it just always in flux, always changing, you know? So the subtlety, you know, a lot of times I think of it as a kind of a body experience that somehow um, what is true in the moment is actually enough. But that habit actually allows us to kind of lean out of the here and now. And in that, then, do we know the difference? Can you actually begin to recognize what's just pleasantness and what's the wanting? You know? And this is, this is sometimes, I think, some of the subtler parts of these practices. Uh, is being able to get that, you know. A lot of the thinking that goes on here, the ideas, you know, it's a mix between 
um, thought and feeling. And they're kind of dancing. And our practice is in actually recognizing. You know, how many, how many stories have you told here? You know, I always think sometimes, oh, if you could just take and, and, and everybody's mind, if we could just have, no, this is terrible. But anyway, if we could just sort of have kind of a, a, all these screens around here and that your thoughts would be projected on those screens, you would be horrified. <laughs> you know, I know, you know. But they're also, uh, these are, in the subtlety of this, is to start to begin to teach yourself, you know. Uh, what does it feel like, you know? And is there this possibility that when we come back to our center, uh, that there is uh, something instinctual, you know, like, oh, this is enough, you know? Uh, I don't need more. You know, I don't need to make up stories. I don't have to go to Tahiti or Hawaii here or, you know, reminisce about that relationship or that, you know, it's, there's a good side and there's also a bad side. But anyway, you know. And our practice is just this capacity to start to recognize, oh, this is where I get hooked, you know. This term alludes to the mind's tendency to latch on to something that attracts it, a thought, a visual object, or a particular emotion. When we allow the mind to indulge in such attractions, we lose our concentration. So we need to apply mindfulness and be aware of how mind operates. We don't necessarily have to suppress all these things arising in the mind, but we should take notice of them and see how the mind behaves. See how the mind behaves. How it automatically grabs onto this and to that. So in a way, we're sitting here in this laboratory Uh, studying uh, our very, very nature, you know. And you can, um, and one of the reasons that we have to collect ourselves here and get so still is because it's so tricky, you know, uh, between the desire and the wanting, uh, between the... Um, unpleasantness, and that's the second part of this, and the uh, aversive, you know. So this is kind of strong, but uh, it's true, you know. As there is wanting, there is also uh, 
rejection and uh, reaction, both feeling and in thought. Ill will refers to the desire to punish, hurt, or destroy. It includes sheer hatred of a person or even a situation, and it generates so much energy that is both seductive, both seductive and addictive. You know, and um, in a way, I hate to refer to our culture, uh, which out of its fear uh, uh, and its rejection, uh, that uh, it reacts. Uh, and we've seen this just lately with all the things going on, and I don't want to stress on it too much, but our culture um, is suffering, you know. And in that suffering, there's also uh, the fear and the aversion, uh, and it needs to be, in essence, known and felt through, you know. Um, you know who Sam Keen is? I, I'm going to read this. I, I know this is kind of heavy duty. This is heavy duty. But it, it's called The Enemy Maker. To create an enemy. Start with an empty canvas. Sketch a broad outline of the forms of men, women, and children. Dip into the unconscious well of your own disowned darkness with a wide brush and stain the strangers with the sinister hue of the shadow. Trace unto the face of the enemy the greed, the hatred, the carelessness you dare not claim as your own. Obscure the sweet individuality of each face. Erase all hints of the mirrored loves, hopes, fears that play through the kaleidoscope of every finite heart. Twist the smile until it forms a downward arc of cruelty. Strip flesh from bone until only the abstract skeleton remains. Exaggerate each feature until man is metamorphosed into beast, vermin, insect. Fill the background with the malignant figures from the ancient nightmares, devils, demons, the evil. When your icon of the enemy is complete, you will be able to kill without guilt, slaughter without shame. The thing you destroy will have become merely an enemy of God and impudent to the sacred dialectics of history. Ouch. But it's such a, a, a hard time right now. You know, the world, um, God, it's confused and suffering and uh, there's some uh, some I think of this culture of rejection you know and somehow uh, supporting um, this view of um, self and enemy you know polarizing you know and our job here is actually 
first of all, just I hope it breaks your heart, you know. And have compassion for the fear, you know, that is instinctual, you know. But we come here, in a sense, this whole process of, of um, kind of seeing our own thought process and how complicated, uh, you know, our old stories and our old wounds and... and um, you know, all the times you've uh, messed up or screwed up or others have betrayed you or screwed up in some way. No. And it's not to deny it or push away, but it is in some way to inform you. you know. From the practice's point of view, We come here and we're so, you know, we're so caught in ourselves. And we sit kind of in our own little bubbles here. But I hope you get tired of yourself. You know? Enough. It's enough. You know, you've told it enough times. You know, it's never gone anywhere, really. So the process here is, that, yes, you have to study yourself and see that you're more than that, you know. And the whole kind of Buddhist path here is based on kind of seeing the workings of this and recognizing that on some level that there is kind of that contraction and that personal um, complexity. And that our practice here is actually to drop below all of that complexity. And really in a way, uh, find that there is kind of a, a very clear and simple being who is not separate from anything that the separateness was those things that created the, through the wanting or the desire or the, uh, the kind of aversion. It created the polarities that, um, you know, um, have harmed ourselves and others through history. You know? And we have to break that down. That's essentially what the practice is to do. So we have these two polarities, you know, and that uh, as we begin to play with them and see through them and kind of loosen them. There's also uh, the third of these is, is really a lot of it is cultural conditioning, you know, that comes from your school, your parents, your friends, um, that, uh, and it's not right or wrong, it's just it creates these views and opinions about things. You know, right, wrong, 
good, bad, happy, sad, you know. Do not grasp at views. Do not form views in a world through either knowledge, virtuous conduct, or religious observances. Likewise, avoid thinking of oneself as being either superior, inferior, or equal to others. Okay, that kind of takes all of it out of it, doesn't it? You know? Superior, inferior, and we are, you know, we, we, when we get afraid, we, you know, shore up and kind of make ourselves better. And, um, or we shore up and make ourselves less than inferior. But what's tricky in this is equal, because it's always somehow comparison. And how, with views and opinions, comparison, um, you know, it's a wonderful attribute that the uh, human mind has uh, when it is properly understood. You know. The wise let go of the self. In being free from attachment, they depend not on knowledge, nor do they dispute opinions or fix upon any view. For those who have no wishes for either extreme of becoming or non-becoming, here or in another existence, there is no conflict with the views held by others. It's a good time, Christmas time, you know, with all this stuff. Especially families. Boy, complicated. It's good to know they can have their views, it's cool, you know. <laughs> they do not form the least notion in regard to views seen, heard, or thought out. How could one influence those wise ones who do not grasp at any view? It's pretty good, huh? There is so much um, in views and opinions, uh, sometimes just through our family systems, our schools, our race, whatever. We have uh, all this shadow. We have all this blind material, you know? And I think sometimes, uh, and we can't catch it all, you know? Uh, Some of the imprints themselves. But being here, uh, by simply uh, kind of loosening uh, recognizing, you know, the, um, that essential non-separateness, you know. It's interesting that the Buddha simply, when he was uh, kind of giving instructions uh, for practice, he picked the breath, not a mantra, not just something that was, what do we know about it is all human beings breathe. That's pretty simple. 
So it's actually looking at universal things. And that was his intent. You know. So we come to the fourth of these. And this one always, uh, sometimes I feel it's not so easy to talk about. But... We're born uh, with instinctual, uh, we could call it uh, instinctual self that, um, you know, uh, has to provide food and shelter and all this. And it is a, a necessary part of who and how we are. And I like the description when you kind of start trying to illuminate what the self is. Uh, is uh, there's uh, kind of an aspect called the two truths. And the Buddha was interested in one of them. But the other one is the conventional. Uh, it is the relative self. You know, uh, you know I'm John, I'm a neurotic. Uh, I, you know, I'm a, 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 your quintessential seeker. Um, you know, uh, these are the relative truths, you know. And we all have specifics around this stuff, you know, and there's not a right or wrong way to be, you know. Um, but there's also in these, there's also, so that's a, the relative part of it. And then there's also the absolute. And from the Buddhist point of view, uh, there is no solid self. It is simply uh, due to the causes and conditions uh, even though it appears to always be the same in some way due to its habits. Uh, it is co something that constantly arises and passes away. It's a flux. And so, in a way, uh, the Buddha, when he was approached on this subject, he didn't say anything, you know? He didn't give an answer, it's this or that, you know. Uh, he left it alone, you know, because there is relative and there is also uh, that that arises, which his description was that the a simple description was what he called the aggregates, you know, uh, khandas or skandas. And they were simply form, you know, a feeling, uh, perception, mental formations, and consciousness. And what we know is uh, consciousness is something that, uh, you know, it is moving at phenomenal speeds. And uh, it touches uh, these sense doors. And I don't know, you know, it's such subtle, this is stuff I don't, I can't, don't know how to describe, but you will be seeing for a few moments, then you'll hear something I say, and you'll go to thinking, and then you'll, maybe you'll go to memory, and then you'll go to an itch, uh, you know, on your butt, and you'll scratch, and it'll be dancing all the time through these sense doors, you know, and the thinking being part of that, you know. Uh, you'll be um, constantly in flux, you know, and somehow, it seems to sometimes move fast enough, 
to create this somewhat, I would say, illusion. This is from the Venerable uh, Togyam Trumpa. The experience of oneself relating to other things is actually a momentary discrimination, a fleeting thought. If we generate these fleeting thoughts fast enough, we create the illusion of continuity and solidity. Got that? So we create the illusion of continuity and solidity. It is like watching a movie. The individual film frames are played so quickly that they generate the illusion of continual movement. So we build up an idea, a preconception, that self and other are solid and continuous. And once we have this idea, we manipulate, this is the trick, we manipulate our thoughts to confirm it and are afraid of any contrary evidence. It is this fear of exposure, this denial of impermanence, that imprisons us. It is only by acknowledging impermanence that there is a chance to die and the space to be reborn and the possibility of appreciating life as a creative process. So, get over yourself. You know? That's not good or bad. It's just that... um, Freedom is basically uh, not attached to any of it. Whether in the mind uh, we are awake and aware uh, that it uh, will, in its wanting, will grasp at things. And I don't think it's good or bad that we do it. If we see it, then we have choice. Otherwise, you are just a puppet to your conditioning. You know? And uh, you are... uh, uh, and we have so much of this walking around in unconsciousness, you know. And so we have to wake up. We have to see that ultimately, you know, um, when we kind of, and if I use the expression, to thin ourselves out, you know, by having really seen this operating system and the consequences of it. No. And then that sense of isolation, that sense sometimes loneliness or separateness, uh, it was an illusion the whole time from this absolute point of view. And that you are me and I am you. And we are all together. You know, uh, whether we like it or not. But the truth is that when we start seeing that that letting go, that sense of truth, that there is an inherent happiness uh, that when we let go of the complexity and the suffering, uh, we start to see that there is... um, you know, they use sometimes the language of Buddha nature or your basic goodness, you know. And you begin adhering and attending to that basic goodness, 
and you cannot harm it. No matter what kind of creepy, terrible things you've ever done in your life. And I certainly have my bunch. You know? Oops. (laughs) You know? And yet, that core cannot be stained or tainted or impaired in any way. And so, ultimately, when we see how this all works, we start falling back and relying on that basic goodness. You got it? I'll read my little whatever it is to end here. Waiting in the town of Fujinomaya. Six days waiting for a break in the weather. Little window last, last day before returning to Turtle Island. The morning, glimmer of hope. Rain, no rain. Then the arduous pilgrimage to scale the volcano. How is it that we lock our minds into journeys that mimic our desire for freedom? Could it be some old story of struggle, the archetypal need to let go of the seeker? Let go of the one more piece of rigid framework of who we think we are not halfway up. The thunder gods brought the winds, rain, and sleet, suddenly locking everything down, remembering the multiple journeys of one breath, one step, one breath, one step, one breath, one step, over and over. I know somewhere deep down I'm taking all my Dharma friends to the last Tory gate. Being just a fragment of all these relationships, giving me strength to take one more step. Of course, at the top, there were no horns, choirs, or angels. Just nature saying, I'm much stronger than you. Nature's breath forcing you to struggle to stay on your feet. You must bow deeply to this life of yours, knowing you're utterly alone out here. That one slip on the volcanic rock could spell disaster. But today, soaked to the bone, the angels have blessed your way onward. Maybe the little, maybe a little deeper understanding of the emptiness of all of this and a bit more grace, bringing the heart into a little, a little better alignment, caring for this one precious life. So let's just sit for a moment.
wake up. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.